Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Melissa Clay, communications specialist. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Jeannie Loeb, senior lecturer of psychology and neuroscience. In their conversation, Dr. Loeb discusses her project on teaching strategies for large lecture courses and the process of discovering her passion for teaching and researching in her field. I guess to start out, can you talk a little bit about what you teach and what you research? So I am a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience, and as such, I actually end up teaching a lot of very large courses. So my largest would be my general psychology course, which has 400 students, and the other classes are about 120, 180. Once in a while, I get smaller classes of uh, 35 or so, but um, it's not often. So what I'm working on this semester for the sabbatical is a, a project where I am writing up interviews that I did a couple of years ago. So there were a group of large course instructors who gathered together to talk about various kinds of teaching issues, and this was supported by the Center for Faculty Excellence. And what was really amazing was not only that we felt such collegiality across disciplines, but also that we all had kind of different ways and ideas of how to solve some very common problems that we face when teaching. And it was really interesting, actually, to hear everyone's perspective on that. And so I thought, well, why don't we expand this? and ask uh, many different instructors about their perspectives on various kinds of teaching issues. So I spent some time, and I ended up interviewing about 21 instructors, uh, very long interviews, talking about all sorts of things. They're teaching philosophies, how they do exams, how they train their uh, teaching assistants, et cetera. And so that is the work that I'm trying to compile now this semester just to let other people um, you know, see what their colleagues are doing, and perhaps that would spark some ideas for their own classes and maybe also encourage them to talk with their colleagues because you can get a lot of great ideas from them. So specifically, what are some of the main challenges of teaching a large class, and how do you deal with those difficulties? Two things which we know are very important for having a great class are uh, organization and rapport. And that is true whether the class is small or whether it is large. But as you can imagine, both those things are quite a challenge when you get to a very, very large classroom. So in terms of organization, for example, most, if not all of us, start well ahead of time trying to make sure that every aspect that we can imagine is taken care of and has a almost automated way of being accomplished. And the reason for that is, of course, everyone is very low on resources. And so we need to be as time and resource efficient as we possibly can. So we think well ahead of time to try and figure out creative ways of dealing with the fact that we need to you know, meet this large demand but have very little resources to meet those demands. Uh, the other aspect is rapport. And you know, that is such a big part of uh, learning, actually, because, you know, studies seem to suggest that not only do students really enjoy talking with each other, getting ideas with each other, but they also want to get to know their instructors and really have that relationship with them, and it actually helps them to become more motivated, interested in the topic, even if they weren't before, et cetera. That's such a challenge for a large classroom, and some of the things that we do, you know, the thing that I love to use in my classes is humor, because humor has a lot of great research. It's not... So let me just say, I know that humor has a lot of great research which suggests that it can really help to build relationships between people, but that is not the way that I came upon this. That just happens to be the way that I like to relate to other people, in particular my students. It's only after the fact that I found a lot of research uh, 
you know, explaining to me, oh, why that happens to be working in my classroom. So humor is one of those things. We also use technology to try and help us uh, give students a voice when we can't reach every student up close. So it, whether it's poll everywhere, even just hands up or little group demonstrations or things that they can participate in, we make sure to try and do a lot of that uh, to try and make sure that, you know, even students sitting in the way upper back regions of the classroom have an opportunity to at least have a voice or some say in what's going on in class. What drew you to the field of psychology in the first place? I didn't come upon the realization that I love psychology until fairly late in college. And part of the reason for that is because what I loved, I thought, was just for fun. I actually spent some time reading about neurons and how the brain works in high school. But of course, that was only in my free time because our high school did not offer a neuroscience course. So I thought that was just for fun. And it wasn't until later that I realized, huh, why don't I consider this as my career. So that is why I went into psychology because it has a behavioral neuroscience specialty. And it clearly was the right choice because I absolutely love my field. And that is despite the fact that my parents almost stereotypically gave me two options for careers. They said, you know, you could be an attorney or a doctor. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do one of those. And then some kindly professor in college said, you know, actually, why don't you consider looking at what kinds of classes you're taking and, and see what you're enjoying because those things can actually lead you to a career that you might enjoy. So I took his advice and I ended up with a career, as I said, that I love, but which my, my parents really had no idea what that was. They were just happy that I found some job. <laughs> I have a special interest in students who are from populations which are struggling. So first-generation okay. college students, transfer students, minority students, et cetera. And part of that arose because in my general psychology class, when we were looking at the numbers, we did find that these students were struggling. Even though the overall class average was great, there was definitely maybe a, I'd call a second tier where they weren't doing as well as they should have. And so we started looking a little bit more closely into that. And um, with the Center of Faculty Excellence, we were able to actually find collaborators, in particular Jan Yacht from the dean, of Sum- or, you know, the dean of Summer School, and she actually funded a bunch of pilot studies that helped us to create a course on study strategies, mm-hmm. which actually help out these students. Um, because one of the things that we noticed is it's not even so much that they don't have the ability to do well. It's just that they may not be using the most efficient and effective methods. And for whatever reasons, a lot of schools do not explicitly teach these methods, despite the fact that we have, in terms of research, we absolutely know which methods are better than others. Some simply just don't work as well. And so we decided we'll give this a shot and we're going to try and teach them explicitly these methods. And so right now that is a course that's being offered during the summers as well as once or twice during the academic year, and we're still looking to expand that. Is there a certain method that is like a core method for study strategy? Well, one of the things that I think all students and faculty should know is the work of Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is a Stanford psychologist, and uh, one of the things that her research has found is that all abilities can be developed 
we are not born the mathematician or not born, you know, a musician. Uh, you really have to develop these things. And even if you have maybe a little bit of extra talent here, inborn talent, et cetera, you still have to do a lot of hard work. But the, what the good news is for us is that if you were not born with that talent, you can still develop it then. It just depends on the time and effort that you put in. So it's, it's kind of sad in some ways that, wow, it's not a magical, you know, surprising factor that makes you succeed in school. It's so mundane in some ways. It's just time and effort. But at the same time, that also means that that is accessible to everyone. You could spend more time and effort on this. Now, you do, uh, you know, it's better, of course, if you have some guidance on what the best ways of spending your time is. And so we can certainly help with that. But that is one of the biggest messages that we will share with our students is that there's really no shortcut. You really do have to put in the time effort. But what that means is if you do, then you are going to get some results. Is there a book that really inspired you or changed your life? Honestly, one of the things that I have always loved, totally unrelated to teaching, I think, is uh, Ender's Game. But it's really not even Ender's Game, the first book. But as part of that series, there's a book called Speaker of the Dead. And one of the things that I loved about this book uh, is that at eulogies, you would actually talk about people's good and bad points, just the mm. person that they were. And I actually thought that that was so much more authentic and accepting than what we may do uh, today, which is, you know, we tend to just talk about the best aspects of the person, et cetera, and it's almost unreal in that way. Um, but I love Speaker of the Dead because it wasn't that you were criticizing the person. You were just telling uh, people, what they were like, you know, the good and the bad points, and you basically accepted and loved them, you know, as a whole person. And I just love that. And the reason why I say that that's had some effect on my life is because I think it helped me to see that, you know, there are just great points about everyone. Okay, so we all have our quirks as well. Right. Uh, but it also, you know, when you come upon people who are very different and you can't connect right away with them, I'm always interested to see how you know, eventually we might be able to connect because I'm positive. There's, you know, many positive points as well, even if I might not see it at, at first glance. There's a copy of Ender's Game in my house because my wife used to teach it. Oh, really? A, it's a sci-fi book, right? It's a sci-fi book, Because yeah. she taught middle school sci-fi. English, so. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I I've sci-fi. tried to start it, and, well, I, I didn't really try that hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's there in my house. It's fun. Well, you know, I read it as a... A child. Yeah, and so yeah. it seemed interesting then. And the second book, probably for children, Speaker of the Dead, probably wasn't as interesting. But I just love the philosophy that mm-hmm. they shared in the book. Yeah. Are there any other sci-fi books you're I love a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy types of books. I will read almost anything and everything. So I'm a big book hog. And so uh-huh. I... Although, you know, I don't like to read psychology in my spare time because I'm already reading so much of yeah. that as it is. That's what you do uh, Exactly. <laughs> so, so even now I'm part of a book club with a fair number of women, and we read all sorts of genres that maybe I never would have chosen. And I love that because it gives me different perspectives that I, I really have never considered. So. What are you reading now in that book club? So um, actually, so the last book we read was The Martian. Oh, <laughs> So that's yeah. yet another How, sci-fi book. book. 
So it's interesting because there was a lot of science in it, which I think some of the ladies like to kind of skim over if possible. But at the same time, they felt that it really kind of lent to the authenticity of the book. Um, so it was pretty amazing some of the things that they thought of that we, you know, as non-space travelers, <laughs> never considered. But we also just loved the style of the book. He mm-hmm. has a really – his main character has kind of a very sarcastic uh, kind of a style, and apparently we're all cynics. We love that style, and we just um, thought it was interesting um, to get that two different perspectives, the science perspective and also just how he's relating as a lone individual stranded on a uh, well on the moon. Um, no, on Mars, actually. So he's stranded on Mars and just talking about humanity as well because we talked about compassion. Why is it that we seem to so feel for him and want to um, help him, whereas when we're having other kinds of movements across the country, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's the, the the piping issues that we're having right now, why is it that we don't immediately step up and try and do um, something immediately for the, those kinds of situations? And so we had some good conversation about what it must be that's drawing us to this lone individual. But There's a book called Better Angels of Our Nature, And it talks about reading and how the act of reading creates empathy. And so literacy has actually reduced violence over the course of history. So we kind of think of everything going on now, it's pretty awful, but it was actually worse back in the day. But they actually, the more literate humans have gotten, the less likely we are to commit these great acts of violence and genocide and things like that. So that might have something to do with it when you're reading this. I would you're totally in, believe it. You're in this person's head. Yes. You're hearing their story. Yes. So that I think that has something to do with it. I would completely believe it. I just feel like it's a safe place to, as you say, step into someone's footsteps and uh, or shoes. Yeah. You know, I think that we have more empathy when we interact with other people and really get to know them if we're not right. feeling threatened. And if we don't get that opportunity because we tend to, you know, go – into environments that we're more familiar with, then reading is a vicarious way of having those experiences and having, and I would completely agree with you there. I think it really helps us to see perspectives that we might not have seen before. My husband and I just went to um, Deepak and saw um, Fun. Did you guys seen that show? I don't know no. if it's just called The Fun or The Fun Home is what it's called. And it was actually an autobiography of um, a woman coming to terms with her sexual orientation. And although my husband and I are both liberal, and so we are, of course, completely supportive of, you know, who, you know whatever you want to be, you should be, there was – it was just really particularly moving and potent to actually see this played out from a very intimate and personal point of view and seeing some of the struggles that – I don't know that we thought of up close because, you know, we're coming from a different perspective, so we just didn't know. But so even though we were already supportive and of, you know, people being different, everyone having their own thing, um, seeing it on a personal level like that was just really amazing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you guys so yeah, much. Thank you. <laughs> Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.